AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Hey, Fierce fans. I'm dropping into your feed today to introduce you to a brand new podcast from Tribeca Studios. It's the Tribeca Talks podcast, and you don't want to miss it. These are our favorite conversations recorded live at the Tribeca Film Festival. Live, in person. Remember when that used to happen? This podcast includes one-on-one discussions with directors about their lives and careers, their intimate conversations with multi-hyphenates in film, TV, and music. Tribeca Talks have always been a staple of the film festival. I've even gotten to host one, and it was some of the most fun I've ever had. They typically take place in April, but right now you can get the same up-close and personal access wherever you are. Now, this first episode celebrates the life of an incredibly fierce woman. Fierce isn't even enough to describe this lady. In it, Barbara Streisand, yes, the one and only Barbara Streisand, sits down with Robert Rodriguez at the 2017 Tribeca Film Festival to discuss how she got her start in the industry, the moment she knew she wanted to direct, the power of will, and so much more. You're going to love this podcast. I can't wait for you to listen. Enjoy. This is Tribeca Talks, our favorite conversations recorded live at the Tribeca Film Festival. I'm Leah Sarbib. This conversation between Barbara Streisand and Robert Rodriguez took place as part of our 2017 Storyteller series, where we celebrate multi-hyphenates in film, TV, and music. Paula Weinstein, our chief content officer, introduced the event. Songwriter, actor, director, producer, recording artist, concert performer, author, philanthropist, humanitarian, feminist, environmentalist, activist, icon. A lot for one person. She's the first female director to ever receive the Kennedy Center honors for more than directing, but she led the way as a director. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom last year from Barack Obama. She is a tireless fighter for human rights around the world, for health care, for the issues that matter to all of us. And she's here tonight with the extraordinarily talented Robert Rodriguez. Please welcome Barbara Streisand and Robert Rodriguez. Are y'all coming to my show? <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, hello, gorgeous. Hello, sweetheart. I know uh, a lot of you are wondering why I'm even up here. So let me just set the stage real quick because give me a minute to set the stage because um, it speaks volumes about the widespread appeal of Barbara Streisand. I grew up in a large Hispanic family of 10 kids in San Antonio, Texas. And in our household, 
there simply was no bigger star than Barbara Streisand. That's just how it was growing up. She was my mom's favorite. My mom would take us to the Revival Theater to see all her movies when they would be re-released or reissued in her current films. And we were well-versed in, in film history. She would take us to the Revival Theater to see all the movies of like the 30s and 40s and 50s. And we would see who stars were. Still, even with that history knowledge, Barbara towered over all of them. And my mom, who you got to meet, loved to talk to us 10 children about God, and about Barbara Streisand. Those are two favorite <laughs> subjects. And after all these years, I don't remember many Bible stories, but I remember all the Barbara Streisand stories. <laughs> and uh, so when I first met you, and I've been in the business 25 years, I've been very fortunate to meet some very impressive people. When I first met you, I was so starstruck. And it hit me that, wow, no one, after all these years, no one has ever come close to your level of talent your level of achievement, your level of accomplishment in so many different areas. And the second thing that hit me was, and no one ever will. Think about that. Think about that for a second. To be an act in the, her acting, her music, you know she's sold more records than the Rolling Stones. I mean... Are you sure? And to then to turn into a directing career, I mean, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. If someone did that today, and when you made Yentl, you were the first woman to write, produce, direct, and star in a major motion picture. If somebody did that today, it'd be the second coming. After you did Funny Girl in 1968, she did 12 movies in 12 years, starred in them, while putting out 20 albums, and then turn to directing. I mean... Oh, gosh. So when... Thank you, Robert. Thank you. So when you, when you have someone that was that impressive of a career, and she's the only one, you, I think it's just natural that people tend to take them for granted right after some time because they're just so used to them being... But when you go back and study, like I've been doing the past couple of weeks, it's so much material that you uh, you find it staggering. And Barbara, we're all here tonight. I flew up from Texas. People came from all over because we do not take you for granted. Oh. That's very sweet. Thank you, Robert. Thank you. The stage is now set. So let us begin. First question. Okay. How the hell did you do this? <laughs> Who are you? Where are you? Are you from another planet? I mean, it's unbelievable, the level of talent. What... Early days sort of define us as an artist. What made you want to get into singing in particular? Because you could have been anything. What made you a singer? Because I know you studied drama originally. You wanted to be a dramatic actress. But what broke you? Did you just need to break in any which way? Or how did you, how did you do it? You know, I think it's because I wanted to escape reality. Um, I wasn't happy. I wasn't a happy kid. And uh, I used to go to the movies a lot, Saturday afternoons. I didn't know that they had time schedules, so I would come in any time of the day <laughs> and sit through two movies. And the only time I ever sat through two movies to see the first one again was to see Marlon Brando. For the first time, it was like, uh-huh. And... Uh, that inspired me, and I, I loved the make-believe world, the world of color. You know, I remember leaving the theater and going out into the drab, hot summer days, you know, and thinking, oh, gosh. Uh, inside the theater, it was cool. They had great ice cream. And these movies and movie stars and love, you know, romance. So that's how it began. And then, um, would you remember your first experience of being on stage? Did you feel like you were at home, or did you feel you knew there was? How did you envision? It seemed you seem like someone who can vision something, and then you just make it happen. What was your vision early on? Whew, gosh, that's an interesting thing. Interesting question. Um, I remember <clears throat> I was the kid on the block with a good voice. My my mo, you know, my ID was. No father, good voice. And um, we used to harmonize on the stoop. 
in Brooklyn and oh and I thought my mother arranged I mean it's too long to go into this I've been working for two years on my autobiography I mean it, it's <laughs> endless so <clears throat> and it's very hard to for me to write about myself it's like you know been there done that and now I have to like try to remember things and actually interesting things come out of it, but mostly it's, I'd rather be directing a film, put it that way. <laughs> um, but what, we, what was the question? Oh, just like what, <laughs> what was it that first gave you the vision to be a performer? What, what was the vision that you had for a career? Would you really think oh, you had a chance? So I had this, I was the kid with the good voice, right? And I remember my mother took me up to uh, audition for Dudley Wilkinson at MGM. Interesting, MGM actually did Yentl. So there's a funny string attached, right? And I sang in a, in a glass booth. And I kind of imitated Joni, um, what was her name? Joni? Joni James, thank you very much. Uh, singing Have You Heard. And I thought, well, just because you get the audition means you're going to be a star. Little did I know, but um, we used to, well, I lived in a project and we had a central park sort of, I mean, made out of concrete, but they had swings. And I remember I was double jointed and I used to do twirls underneath the, the uh, slide. And I thought, wow, I was nine, I remember then. I thought, I'm going to be a star. <laughs> and I, I'm a person who really believes in the power of the will. And I think, I don't know, I think I kind of willed it. In a very quiet way, by the way. It's not loud or pushy or anything. It's very internal, very deep. And I do believe that you can manifest your reality. Because I, when I was 16 in acting classes, I read a book by George Bernard Shaw called The Quintessence of Ibsenism. Because I actually wanted to be in Ibsen plays. And the, the one sentence I remember out of that book was, thoughts can transcend matter. Thoughts transcend matter. And I thought, okay. You know, even later on when I had a career as a singer, uh, people would say, how do you hold the note so long? And I said, because I want to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I never had formal training. I don't know a technical answer to that question, you know? So I think it's because of my will. When you go up against so much adversity and just barriers, you know, just as a woman in the business trying to, what, what would you, and you're sensitive, you're a sensitive person and you want to keep that as an artist, criticism and just pushback. How do you get past that? Is it just willpower or do you tend to ignore the barriers that are put up? And put, no, I think <clears throat> if you, you have know, strength, but it's not like you're saying, you have a very soft strength. You're not, you're not made of iron. No. Um, it's funny because I, I don't like crappy criticism. I like constructive criticism. I really do. If somebody can show me something that I can do better, I'm, I'm all up for it, you know? But what I remember is the bad reviews. I forget the good reviews. I have, I'm working on this book and I have a researcher and she tells me these great reviews. I said, what? Where did that come from? I don't remember them at all. I remember the bad. So, you know, that's probably part of the an artistic process. You, you start because, in a way, you don't feel good enough. And yet, there's also the other end of the scale, which is confidence. So it's a funny thing, you know? <clears throat> you have to have both qualities, I think, the self-doubt and the confidence. I just try to figure out, and we've talked a lot, and you're still a mystery to me. I can't figure really? out. Yes, because you have such fantastic confidence, yet 
you still have the self-doubt. But I just wonder, how do you push past the self-doubt? Because you accomplish so much, it spins heads. That what is it that you tell yourself at the point where you get the criticism, especially if it's bad, not constructive, and you just feel like everyone's against you and no one believes you. Like you tell your cameraman that isn't that wrong and he's the lies. I mean, when you're just got the deck stacked against you, what takes you over the edge? Is it because you have such a strong vision or just willpower? Or what how, you you're so in touch with creativity. How do you keep that creativity going? Whew. Gosh, I don't know. You know, maybe certain things are in the DNA. Mm -hmm. I didn't know my father because I was only 15 months old when he died. But in reading his writings, his thesis, uh, and going for, going for a PhD, he, I mean, here I was wanting to be this classical actress, really, and do plays of Shakespeare and Chekhov and Ibsen, and reading, rereading recently his thesis, How to Teach English to Juvenile Delinquents and Prisoners at Elmira Reformatory. It's all about the use of Chekhov, Ibsen, Shakespeare. I mean, I didn't know him. Right. So I, I think it's in the DNA, you know? And I think my father was somebody who was on the debating team and the French team and wanted to write, but he was interested in psychology and he taught school. So who knows? I mean, it's, there are certain things that are kind of mysterious. And you're very instinctual, so you tend to just follow your instinct yeah, no matter what. Yeah, I do. I really go by what feels right to me. Which would explain a little bit... Uh, it's not repeatable, but how you be able to have this career? Because if you had done what you were supposed to, listened to people when they told you to do that, played by the rules, you would not have, your career would have been over like that. But it's you know, you know that's very interesting because my mother went to work when my father died. So I was, I had no discipline. In other words, I remember teaching my mother how to smoke a cigarette at 10 years old. <laughs> uh, you know, I remember, you know, asking why all the time, or what, you know, questioning things. That's because I also went to yeshiva, and where you learn how to uh, analyze things or question them. And that became Yentl in a sense. I understood her. And I realized, too, when I was writing this book, that my grandfather would take me to synagogue on high holy days, and I would sit with him in the men's section. I wasn't alienated with the women upstairs, right? So I felt kind of familiar with being with the men. Uh, you know, who knows what that has to do with even choosing to do Yentl. Right. Um... When you and Funny Girl is one of my favorite movies. Who's seen Funny Girl? It's your first film, starring in a first film. You got an Oscar in your very first film for your performance. It's an amazing film. It's a story of Fanny Bryce, but it easily feels like it could be your story. Because when you sing I Am the Greatest Star, it is like the announcement. You're seeing a star being born on screen in the story, but also in real life. It, it's uncanny how sometimes people's first films reflect so much of their personality and they kind of become that character. And you soar to greater heights than that character ever did even. Um, what's your favorite memory of working on that movie? Oh, I loved every minute of working on that movie. And I adored Willie Wyler and my cameraman, Harry Stradling. They were just wonderful, but I remember well, learning how to dislike the press because every time I said something or had a suggestion, it was like put in the paper as if I were, like as if we were fighting or something. And I thought, what are you talking about? I mean, I always had, a, you know, a thoughts about, I always had opinions. <laughs> and opinions in the 60s were not popular from women. Yeah. It's interesting, they had them in the 40s. Well, that was during the war. 
Right. You know, when men went to war and you were left with the women. So you had opinions, so much so that uh, Director William Wyler gave you a megaphone at the end and a note that said, congratulations, Barbara, on directing your first picture. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. You're my hero. Because you have to be that person to get through the business being a woman. That's why when you finally turned to directing in Yentl, just the, it's a great honor, but the fact that you were the first woman to write, direct, produce, and star in a major motion picture, it's kind of sad that that was the first time. Yeah. But yeah. better you than anybody else. Yeah, but yeah. only with that kind of willpower, drive, and vision. And you're a Taurus. My mom's a Taurus. Yes, we're so, strong, stubborn. If you want to get run over, just get in her way. Yeah, right. Well, you know, I remember calling Willie before I directed Yentl and saying, you know, I can't wait to talk to you. And um, he said to me, I'll just tell you what not to do. And I was fascinated as to what that was going to be. When I came back from a a recce in London, I called Willie right away because I really couldn't wait to meet with him. And his wife said he had died. But she wrote me a beautiful note that said, you know, when you're on the set, if you don't know what to do, be very quiet and you might hear Willie whistling not whistling. You might hear Willie whispering in your ear. You know, it was just such a lovely thought that I thought, okay, because I remember Alan Parker saying to me, if you don't know what to do, I tell them to build tracks. <laughs> they can think. Then, it takes then time. Take, yeah. Buys you 20 minutes or 30 but minutes. But you see, being a woman, I couldn't do that. I don't want them to do all this work for nothing. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do that. I thought... <laughs> see. But I've already thought about it. You know, I had five years to think about it. Fourteen years before I made Yentl, but five years of really, you know, day-to-day, minute-to-minute, night-to-night, um, writing, searching. You um, worked with some amazing directors, William Wyler, Gene Kelly, Vincent Minnelli, and that's just your first three movies. Peter Bogdanovich, Sidney Pollack. Who did you, uh, did any of them encourage you to direct? Or when did, when did you get the idea that you wanted to be a director? Because it wasn't a path women were taking. And that's what, did you always know that it was going to, when did you know that you were going to? No, I really didn't until, actually, the way we were in terms of film directing, the way we were, um, I adored Sidney, but, and we were very close friends. We told each other secrets that no one will ever know. But we disagreed on a big thing. And that was that in the way we were, there were two scenes that were cut out that I thought were... Essential to the plot. Pardon me? Essential, Essential to the plot. Essential to yeah. the plot, yeah. Because now they break up the two characters, Hubble and Katie, they break up because it looks like he slept with this girl once or something, and that's why they broke up. But they didn't really break up because of that. The two scenes that were cut out were the first one where Katie was driving through the UCLA campus, and she hears and sees a girl sort of like reminding her of herself in the late 30s, when she was standing up in front of this college crowd and people made fun of her. And she got angry. She didn't have too great a sense of humor, whatever. And I pull up the car and I'm pregnant. And I see this girl and I see a crowd gathering and she's talking about the beginnings of the blacklist. And we did this take in one take because it was so well written meaning just the idea that Katie drives up to this college and sees a person much younger than herself but it reminds her of the way we were the way I was and I remember loving it in Arthur's treatment and he did it in one take one shot where as I'm watching her The camera just moves in. And all I did was, I didn't even know what was going to happen, but what happened to me was I started off kind of thinking, my God, is that what I looked like, you know, and sounded like? And 
And then as the camera moved in, it just, I got so sad. So by the end of the move-in, I was sobbing. Okay, now that was cut out of the film. And I thought, because I had wanted Redford to have, I loved the structure. Here's this love scene, love scene, me and Redford together. I love you, I love, I want us to be together. And he said, uh, you know, we love each other. That's the trouble we do. Now the next scene was going to be me at UCLA. And then we added a scene for Redford in the boat where he's talking about the best years. And that was perfect structurally because it was like, we love each other. Then you have her alone and you have him alone. And here's the next scene that was cut out. Starts with Redford saying, who's Frankie McVeigh in their beach house? And I said, you know, the kid from the YCL, remember, played by James Woods. Yeah, yeah the James Woods character. Right? And he says, he just informed on you. He what? What are you talking about? Yeah, well, you know, I said some sort of line about... Um, <laughs> He must have hated that you cut in at the dance. I don't know. I mean, what, what, what could he be using as, as, what is he talking about? If there was a scene before I tell Redford I'm pregnant where I said, you know, how I spent my days, I write synopses of these crappy screenplays. One of them today I made up, you know, a Chinese rice patty or something like that. That's the kind of crap they're using against me. But there's no reason, I mean, people should not be informing on each other. And you know what this means, Hubble? This means that if you have a subversive wife, you get fired. You can't stay in this town. And he says, I'll go back to, I'll go back to um, writing my novel. And now it cuts into what is in the movie now. Right. I sit down at the table and I say, it's amazing how events change your life willy-nilly. What events? Yeah, you don't know what you're talking what about. What events? <laughs> <clears throat> the point is that by the end of that scene, I say to him, will you stay with me till the baby's born? Yeah, right. Because I've made that decision. The character of Katie, our politics and our love story come together at that moment. That's the climax of the film. You can see this conversation, by the way, if you ever look at the way we were... DVD? DVD extras, deleted scenes or something? Uh, this was a conversation that we was filmed between Sydney, me, and Arthur Lawrence. And it's very interesting to hear this, you know, because Sydney and I, uh, Sydney and I have always disagreed about this. I begged them, you know, throw out 20 minutes of the film. Yes, they were boring political scenes. Right. But don't throw out these five minutes. And you told me it was cut for length, and you're like, well, Cut one of the other scenes. Why are you cutting that scene? Well, I mean, no, there were other scenes that were cut that were right to cut. You know what I'm saying? Like he made a big chunk, 20-minute cut. And 15 of those minutes were right to go out. But Sidney told me when I said, why would you cut that? And he said, nobody would believe that stuff about, uh, you know, Chinese and and this was three months before Watergate. And, I, you know, when Watergate came, would you believe the plumbers went in and they screwed up the lock? <laughs> and then that, you know, who would believe that story? So when you... That's when I decided to be a director. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to... I'm directing from now on. <laughs> well, I mean, by that point, you'd already done so many records. And as a, when you're doing records, you are the director. So was it hard to have so much control and see so much success by having control? And the recording, you're, you're a, multi, a mega multi-hyphenate. So you you're, have complete control in the music world. But then you go and you're being in a movie and you're begging for things that you don't get. That's what made you become a film director in a way, probably. In a way. I mean, my first film, Willie, you know, he sat with me at... Dailies. Showed you dailies that you... And he, when he put this film together, I must say, 95% of the shots that he picked and the takes, because I was editing in my head, watching the dailies every day. Right. And I swear, he put together the film the way I... Except for the story I told you earlier about, and where I wanted to refilm the song live. Refilm the last song. The last 
seen. Yeah, but um, I don't know. I couldn't believe... Because the, the rest of the movie I thought was great, you know, the way we were. But I couldn't understand th those two scenes, you know, being cut. Also, it's interesting. I remember thinking, you know, they break up, puts a key down on the piano, and uh, they're alone. And she was putting... Uh, his clothes in a suitcase. She was taking out his paper. She, and then she's sitting there before I do some a big telephone call. And I said to Sydney, wouldn't it be better if she was angry at first? Meaning she slams his, takes out his paper and slams it shut, takes his clothes and puts it in a suitcase and slams that, and then takes his shaving cream out of the thing and puts it in the, in a uh, can, you know, and then you cut to quiet, far shot. You don't know what's going to happen. She's quiet before she makes that telephone call. Right. You know, but Sidney was a wonderful director. Believe me, there was a part of me that I couldn't cry in a scene. And he didn't have to say anything to me. He just held me for a moment. And that was it. You know? <laughs> I mean, he was fabulous. I adored him. But it just shows you that from that point, from that I couldn't moment control on. that. I couldn't but that's amazing that you, because um, again, it wasn't a path that was chosen, but that's the path you chose. Okay, I'm just going to direct my own movies. I mean, that's very bold. That's very, you know, I, I, uh, well, I also believe in serving the director's vision. Right. So it was, you know, if Sydney wanted it that way, I did it the best I could. Because I, I remember saying to him, you have me crying in five scenes right <laughs> near each other. Wouldn't it be better to just, Take a couple away and don't have me cry. I didn't want to cry, but I did it because he wanted. Why did you to. Wait, after you started directing, yeah. um, I don't think I've asked you this before. Did you yeah. find it hard to just act again? Did you? Was the director always working, or were you find to relinquish? Oh no, you it was the, so easy to act. Yeah, because you because once you write, the, you know, work on a script that long, and you know everything about the movie, the, the texture, the language, the lighting, you it's all in your head. It was the easiest part, and that's what I told you. I always filmed the other actors first. Oh, no, I mean on somebody else's movie that you're not oh, somebody directing. somebody else's movie. That you're not directing. Uh-huh. Harder uh. to... <laughs> I, I get it. I, I figured. You know, I, um... Well, yeah, like Star is Born. <laughs> yeah, like Star is Born. Well, Star is Born... Mm. <laughs> that was tough. That was really tough because I was, in a sense, blackmailed into hiring the director. I had hired him to write. Right. And then before he would do another rewrite, he said, by the way, I, I won't do it unless I direct. Now, I had control over that movie. I had final cut with the first artist company. That's what they gave the artists, final cut. Right. So, and I had that movie in my head. And I worked on the script a lot. So, and the songs and all that. Um, I said, look, you could have all the credit, but you have to allow my vision to be as well, I mean, as yours. It was interesting, interesting that I'm like a, a straight shooter, I tell you what I think, but he was kind of, um, he would say, I agree with that, I agree with that, and then I'd come on the set and the camera's in a completely other position. I said, what do you mean, you know, it's like, um, that was tough because let's say I would say <clears throat> I was doing my song Evergreen and I wanted to do the whole movie was live singing and so I say I have the idea for it you know we do it in one shot and the camera's going to start on a microphone my hand will come into frame and then then my head can come into frame. And then as the camera moves around, you see another hand on her hand. And it's Chris Christopherson. And it will see, if that camera goes in 180 degrees, you will see everything you have to see. You will see me. You will see Christopherson. You will see a two shot. Mm -hmm. You will be behind my head and see Chris. And then you just come back. It was like the simplest thing. So I could sing the song in one take. I don't like to break up songs and things and scenes even. So 
And you know, you pick a size that was normal, natural. It, it held the microphone. Right. That determined the reality of the piece. You know, I even sang the wrong lyrics. It shows you how live it was. You know what I mean? <laughs> but now the director comes in and says, "No, I don't like the size. I think it should be. I think he wanted it tighter or looser. I can't remember what we did." This other size that made no sense. It wasn't real. It wasn't, why would you even be closer? Or why would you be wider? It had no, I knew I got it because in that take, in the first take, Chris pulled away because he was very insecure singing with me. In the second take, perfect, because I said to him before, whatever happens, don't leave me here alone. You have to stay with me, okay? And so here he's pulling away and I'm grabbing him back. You know, all on film, all for real. You know, uh, uh, he did something that I loved and I kissed him in the middle of it. You could never do this if this was lip synced. And I'm a terrible lip synker <laughs> because I can't be in the moment if I'm trying to do something that was done three months before. Do you know what I mean? I don't work that way. Right. So... It's more fun my way. I love hearing how you were, you had, yeah, you had strong opinion, but also part of it's that you're, it's so subjective, right? Because he might, he, it's just subjective. He might have thought that that frame looked good. You just thought it was better, tighter, or is that why it also, it's not yeah. just so much that you want to just have your way and that you want control, but that it's so subjective that it is people subjective, have different opinions. It? Yeah, I mean, it's we did it way his right. way as well. Mm -hmm. You know, he could do whatever he wants. I just wanted, and another thing, see, he would, I would be in the middle of a song and it was in profile, and then I was, it was really good, and he yelled, cut. I go, why did you cut? He says, your head went out of frame. Now, I said, if you have a good operator, he'll follow my head. <laughs> Two, my head will come back, even if he doesn't follow. You know, Don't it'll cut. go like that. Don't cut. So, so it was insane to me. You know what I mean? Like, why? Because I saw Christofferson do something. He was in a very poignant scene alone. Hangs up the telephone and Frank yelled, cut. But the actor was processing what he was doing or what he just felt like. It was so interesting that I saw that he doesn't see the truthful moment. Actors are very interesting. And uh, so <laughs> he can... yelled action, but I yelled cut. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I, I, um, you did a record with, uh, recently with Jamie Foxx uh, saying on one of the tracks, called Encore, by the way, her new album. You have to get it. It's really terrific. Jamie's fantastic. He uh, worked with a director friend of mine. My director friend told me this because he knew I was going to come speak to you. He said, oh, it was funny. I was having a conversation with Jamie Foxx, my director friend said. And it came up that you all did an album together. And Jamie asked my director friend, have you ever met Barbara? And my friend said, no, I haven't. And Jamie said, she gangsta. She gangsta. <laughs> <laughs> and you are. I mean, you inspire so many people. I mean, when you say these stories, they inspired this young Hispanic oh, filmmaker from San Antonio, sweet. Texas, so to go up into an industry where you felt like you didn't have a voice. And to see yeah. you do it really was inspiring. And when you made your first film, Yentl, I mean, my family was already a big fan of yours, but to see my five sisters watching it over and over again for a whole other reason, because really? they saw the power that you had wow. in making this in this film, wow. it really is life-changing for oh, that's people. that's so nice. Thank you. That's and you told me the most fascinating thing about that that made me think a lot about why diversity and is so important in, in Hollywood. You told me that when you shot Yentl, it was actually a very smooth experience that you didn't, oh. no one even questioned you being a director like you had That's thought. Right. And why was that? It was because they had a woman prime minister, Margaret Thatcher. You shot in England. In England. That's right. <laughs> and they had a queen. So what was I? You know, a little Pishika first-time director. It didn't matter. Yeah. I mean... A woman in power like that was not... They were used deal. to it. 
You used right. to, but then when you would come back here, to America, be backlash. It so was tough. It made you made me realize, yeah, it's it's a there's a cultural problem. Yeah, and the only way that changes is by diverse voices, more women in film. Yeah, and yet right. those are the ones who are held back. Exactly. But that's what that's what is needed. Um, Yentl was a triumph. I mean, I, I love so much about that movie, and we'll we'll go into it. And it was even recognized. By Academy, four Academy Award nominations, maybe even five. Five, but who's counting? Who's counting? <laughs> I, I, I forget those because the one that stands out the most, besides Best Picture, was the lack of Best Director. She didn't get nominated for Best Director. Now, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. That was Prince of Tides. Oh, okay, okay. That was Prince of Tides. I got that mixed up. That's, I oh. cannot tell a lie. Okay, well. Best director was over. Okay, possibly that was the a snub. Golden Globes that it was you, yeah. that it won. You possibly a snub. We'll see what happens. <laughs> but it it really does mean a lot for for women, for minorities. When people to get when you get robbed, uh, that that's that's a bad thing because it you need that recognition to get your next gig. A man will go and take those four nominations and get you know eight movies in the next eight years. You didn't direct another movie for eight years. Mm -hmm. Why did you wait so long to make Prince of Tides? Not that it wasn't worth waiting for, but... You know, at the time, I, I felt okay about it. It was like, it made the, it made the subject of, of discretion, discrimination against women. It made it, it put it, a spotlight on it. It was like, huh? People thought. But, um, so it didn't, you know, I was pleased to see people holding up signs at the Academy Award. <laughs> I didn't go that night. Um... So I thought it was interesting. But I must have been more hurt than I thought. Because it's like I didn't want to direct for years. Right. Until I found The Prince of Tides. I also have to have a, a passion for a project. Right, right. It's like otherwise... I mean, you produced a film in that time. And I was just wondering why. It just really surprised me you didn't direct for so long after. But again, it's also this lack of material. In fact, you had to write... Yentl, you're one of the writers on Yentl. That that thing just pop out of the air. So it takes time to create your own projects. Right. So right. that you found Prince of Tides is remarkable because it's such a different movie than you've even acted in before. What drew you to that project? Because that was really surprising coming from you. You know, I didn't want to take another five years of, of right. planning this thing beside the other um, the fourteen years completely. Um. So I wanted to see how I could do that faster. So that one only took three and a half years. <laughs> but it was exciting. It was, I loved making that movie. And I went away on a boat trip after I went to a, a symposium, which was so interesting. Because it's like, <clears throat> at the moment of commitment, you know, the universe does conspire to assist you, said by Goethe. And as soon as I thought, that's what I really want to do, I went to this symposium filled with doctors and therapists. And I was looking for the character of the wounded healer, right? And I found it right there. <laughs> and, and these sessions are all taped. Wow. And some of the things that were said, and, you know, so I went on this boat trip with a great friend, Steve Ross, who used to be the head of Warner Brothers. Divine, lovely, kind, sweet man. And um, it's funny, the room had a desk for writing, looking out at the ocean. And he was going to Greece, where, where that's the, the basis of mythology. And the two characters in Prince of Tides were twins. Mm-hmm. And so, sort of everything just fell into place. I was able to distill the novel that was 547 or 87 pages and see that quiet and being in a wonderful company and in a foreign country, I was able to figure out what the movie would be to me. You know, because somebody said it should be, it's so such a big book, it should be a 13 series. Right, uh, miniseries, miniseries or something. Series. 
Um, you got a fantastic performance from Nick Nolte. You're terrific in it too. Is it hard to act in a movie that you're directing? No, no. As How do you I said, do it? I do you think, to check the no because there's less people or? to argue with. You don't have to argue with the producer or the, <laughs> you know, the director. Uh, I come last. The directors, the act, the other actors are first. That's my biggest joy is to get the best performances out of other actors, and then it's the director's vision. Then it's the producer who has to you know, sort the um, financial with the aesthetic, the creative. And then the actress, because she just dumps, you know, she steps in at the end. And you can be as simple as you want, you know? If you haven't seen Prince of Tides, watch it, and you'll be very surprised that she she made it. It doesn't seem like a Barbara Streisand movie. It really shows her growth as a director. One of my favorite things about it, too, it's a small thing, but you didn't even put one of your songs in the movie. Even though you had one, you put it on the soundtrack, but not in the movie because that's you right. thought that's it would right. take away probably from the film showing. And that's your that's audience right. counts on that. They pay money to see your well, songs yeah. and the end credits. The, the studio movie. wanted an Academy Award nomination yeah. for, for a new song. I thought, I can't do it. Now, it's interesting. Redford didn't want me to sing at the end of The Way We Were. But there I didn't mind it because I wasn't the director. Right. And Sidney loved it. And it, and it does it. go with the movie, with the romance with of the movie. movie and- but here, directing it and then singing it, and then this, I, I thought, why is this psychiatrist singing? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? That's... That's badass, but and and the movie is it's a power powerhouse movie, and this time the Academy was paying attention. Seven Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, ah, ah, ah. no nomination for Best Director again. That is clearly. I mean, back then it's just confusing. Now looking back historically, of course it's a fucking snub. They don't. They want to put you in your place. Used to say that, and people would say, "Ah, oh, she's just." No, it's true. There were a lot of older people, older directors too. That they're not used to a. They don't want to see a, a woman director. I don't think. And then there's the whole notion of, I don't know how many women wanted to see another woman director because then you get into competition and a bit of jealousy and. You know, because I was telling you earlier, the most vitriolic reviews of Yentl, maybe even Prince of Tides, those I remember. But I don't remember what they said. I just remember being shocked. I remember the first, I was on some sort of special talking about Yentl, and after it was Channel 7, and the woman said, oh, I'm going to give you the first review of Yentl. Stay tuned. By the way, this woman was the girlfriend of another producer that I worked for. And she was upgraded. He saw to it that she went from a cooking show to a TV critic. <laughs> you know, doing movies now, right. right? And I'll never forget the sound of her voice. She said, well, you want to know what I think about Yentl? I liked it, but I didn't love it. <laughs> You know. Thanks. Uh, the, the New York Times, I remember that because, oh, that was about, that was about Yentl, yeah. She said, she's wearing designer yarmulkes. <laughs> and I didn't like, she said, I didn't like the lighting coming in that window on her father. Now, David Watkin is a brilliant cinematographer. The light on him was gorgeous. <laughs> and every piece of clothing I wore was from books and research from the Yivo Institute and Polish Jews and so forth. And it was the same yarmulke they, you know, Bergman, Ingmar Bergman had in uh, Fanny, what was it called again? Fanny? Fanny? Fanny and Alexander, thank you. But she criticized my why. Nobody, none of the women at the time, I remember, except I think Pauline Kale, but I forget these reviews, honestly. But I think it was good. I'm not sure. But it was not about what the movie was about, a celebration of women and all they could be. They could, you know, make the uh, simmus for dinner and they could have babies 
and they could study and be smart. None of them talked about that, what it was, the movie was trying to say. Right. So go figure. <laughs> so, um, but you caused a lot of change. I know that's not why you did it, but so many more women now are in film because of you. In fact, the only, only woman to ever win for a best director was Catherine yeah. Bigelow, and it just so happened... Yes. You were the one handing her the award at this I thought that because I that... knew she was going to win. That's... And I thought, I remember just ad-libbing, it's about time or something like that. <laughs> it was like, of course she should win. How did that feel? I mean, you must have known that it's because of you that it became a path for people. Really, it did. It really changed people's thinking. Well, It made me think Mexican get into Hollywood. That's what I think. But how many years later was that from Yentl? I forgot. What? You know, when she won the Academy Well, that Award. was um, 2007 or 2008, 2007. And Yentl was 1983. 1983. You know, I know my it Barbara. It took a long time. And look, not enough women are directing now. Enough? Not enough. Not enough. Oh, no, no, not at all. Now. No, it's, it's never enough. But it, it's certainly more than it was because of, you mean, Well, really I love when I see a woman's name doable. on a film and then I always pray that it's good. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, I want it to be good. I want to when you're, support um, that. When you're, I'm just curious. When you're directing and acting at the same time, like you're in a scene with Nick Nolte, do you, do you just go ahead and get lost in the scene as an actor, or is the director always working and are you using that as an opportunity? The director to- is always working. And by the way, it's tough for the other actor sometimes because right. I remember doing a scene with Mandy Potenkin. Potenkin? Potenkin? Yeah, Potenkin. <laughs> I thought Potemkin. I don't know. <laughs> Potenkin. And, you know, we're walking down a street, and I have to look at him. What, do you like this girl? I mean, she, <laughs> she's, uh, she has a, f- whatever the lines were. But, and then I, I, you stop the scene, and then I go, you know, on that line, because I have no coverage, maybe try it another way or right. you know, play with it or something. And he, he was, like, shocked. He was like, <laughs> but, you know. Oh, he said to me, I remember him saying to me, you're looking at me. And I said, well... I'm the character looking at you because, you know, I was talking about your girlfriend in there. So it can be confusing. Right. I mean, it's, it's tough, you know? I mean, it's not necessarily easy for the other actor. Right, no. They are, you, they, well, you see them, they probably look at you and say, okay, she's reacting, but she's also thinking, I could put a 50 millimeter on this and that's right. get it again. Exactly. <laughs> that's true. Exactly. Um, I really love that quote that you said, you know, how long do you hold that note? Because I want to. What advice would you give to those? Because you seem fearless and I know you're, you'll laugh at that, but I'm what, not, is, I'm not what advice would you give to those who I have, have fear I have putting fear, themselves out there? But I do it anyway. You do it anyway. Put but it how, that way. What advice would you give to those who have fear of criticism, that fear of not knowing, that fear of following their inner voice, fear of failure, but also fear of success? Because if you're successful, you'll get criticized even more like you do, like you've been saying. That fear in general, what would you tell people? Because you're so but, adept at creativity. But I think that fear is like an engine to create. Do you know what I mean? You, you That's just how you see it. That's a great thing right there. You're using it as an engine and not a wall. So yeah, how do you yeah. how do you feed off of that fear? Do you Don't mention a wall to me. <laughs> I don't want any wall. <laughs> I can't stand that word anymore. <laughs> do you consider yourself an actress, a singer, or a director First, I mean, because you're so many things. What would you consider yourself first or, or that you enjoy the most? I think probably actress only because that's what I wanted to be right. first. Mm-hmm. And then I sang because I couldn't get a job as an actress. And then I directed because I couldn't, I couldn't be heard. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The stories you wanted and to tell then, weren't being told or being given to or, you. Or, you know, I couldn't control the outcome. I had no power. So, no, I like being responsible for my work, you know, taking the blame and the reward. You said something interesting backstage. Now today, if you had to choose between an huh? acting gig and a directing gig, you would choose directing. You'd rather direct? Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, now I just really want to direct. Acting is too much trouble. You have to put on makeup. You have to have your <laughs> hair done. I think there's some microphones. If people want to ask a question, you can line up behind a mic. Somebody said there was microphones. Is there microphones? Okay, who's first on the questions there? Back there with a the microphone. Hi, Barbara. Hi. How were you able to deal with being a mom 
and continue to go forward with your career and deal with that, you know, the guilt of being a mom, yeah. being away from your child, but still persevering as a singer. Because for me, if I don't do that, I won't be who I am. You know, you do the best you can. I mean, right? When you come home, do you bathe your child? Do you, do you read stories? Do you sing with him or her? You know, it's the connection. It's that connection. I always believed in being very honest with my son. And I'm very, very proud of him today. I mean, he, he's a great singer, by the way, my son. Just made an album produced by Quincy Jones. That's about to come out um, soon. So you do the best you can, you know? It's like we blame our mothers for this and that. And then you outgrow that and you realize uh, life is tough. It's not easy. And as I said, do the best you can. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Barbara. Hi. This is probably the biggest thrill of my life. <laughs> I have loved you since I was 12 years old. Oh, my God. Yeah. I have all your, everything, you know, the, whole, the works. I want to ask you, what goes into when you, when you uh, make albums, and I have all of them, what, what goes into selecting the songs? Because you have selected some of the most gorgeous songs in the world. It was always about well, it had to be a great lyric, something that I could act, because when I started to sing, because I couldn't get a job as an actress, I looked for songs that, that had a beginning, a middle, and an end, so the character could go someplace. Like a song like, If I Loved You, probably, you know, is a song about, well, you know, she loves him, but she can't show it. So, you know, if, you know, defensive. And then by the end of the song, she's almost shy because she maybe admitted too much but that's all because if I love you I mean it's really interesting to pick songs you know from a lyric point of view but it also has this magnificent melody to sing I know there are other people the Bergmans have such you've had been so close with them yeah have they helped you select a lot of the songs? No. Or you've no. done all the selecting no, except on your own? For, the, for their songs. I've sung 60 of their songs. So, <laughs> they write, you know, they understand drama. And the score of Yentl was pretty fantastic, I must say. And it was so much fun to do over the years with them. So, yeah, they're great. Good luck. My pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. You're welcome. It was funny. When I went to your concert, I went to your concert, took my mom to see your concert. In Texas. In Texas. You never played Texas. So never, we were there right? and it was wonderful. And it, but it was so funny. At the end, you asked me, because you talk between your songs. It's mm -hmm. fascinating. It's like this, but she right. sings in between. So you get to hear all these great stories. And you asked me a funny question at the end. You said, do you think I talk too much in between songs? Mm -hmm. I thought, Hasn't that been your act since the 60s? I mean, you still ask people for advice? You still have sure. that unsure, unsure of yourself yeah, I in some like, ways? I like, I like to ask people because it kind of strengthens my own opinion. Right. And but I, even after you know, that I, much time, though. Oh, yeah. Because I love it. I mean, you kind of almost don't need the music because you're like, hey, I love just hearing her stories. I loved it. But oh, it was good. funny that you would still, good. I thought it was very charming. Oh, no. that you would I don't still think you ever, people. you know, that's just would, that just would be arrogant. That means I'm a, I'm a little girl. I thought it was Still full of really wonder as dumb. well as a mature woman. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, that's, that's, I think, the core of creativity. It's that child within. So you have the child amazing. still is... Did you keeping like that, that? Keeping that alive, I think, is the key to your success because to be that much of a multi-hyphenate means, you know, there's a book called The One Thing. You should just pick one thing and do one thing. Oh, really? That doesn't apply to you, right? But it does in a way. No, because I... Because you yeah. live a creative life. You, you use creativity in everything you do. And that makes everything available to you. It's why you can jump from job to job, basically, and do really well at it. Because they're all tied by creativity. And you're one of the, the most creative, actively creative people that I've ever met. So I'm very proud Well, of directing... Directing is like, you know, because I love to decorate and design 
things. So directing is such a great thing to do because you get to do all those things. I love, you know, costume design, production design. How is a set going to function? You know, how, you know, for Amy, I wanted her to be the feminine aspect of the film in Yentl. And so I say, oh, she has this gorgeous red hair. So when she makes her first entrance, let's put a sconce, told Roy Walker, you know, on the wall right there to justify this beautiful glow, her backlight. You know, that's that's the fun of it. it it's it's not just But you you know that you are into design and and, and building as well as many of your other many talents. And in a way, because of the way you are able to envision and manifest and design and build, you've designed your career and your life. You've built all of this yourself. So when I asked at the beginning, how are you able to do this? That makes sense that you're able to build, design, and see what is needed. And then if it's not happening, you fill that void yourself. Let's take I try. a question. I try. Hi. <laughs> uh, I'm a singer also, and I really believe you made me a singer since I was a little girl. I just love you so much. But um, anyway, I was just wondering if when you were a young girl, if you had a barber or somebody like an idol, like that you would just like thought. Who did you look up to? Who, who was oh, sort of like a, a met? No, it was Johnny Mathis. <laughs> yeah, I just thought he was so beautiful with those dark eyes. I'll never forget seeing him on the Ed Sullivan show when we first got a TV, you know, and he had this gorgeous instrument and he was so soulful. And he seemed like he was in pain a bit. I'm always drawn to pain uh, for some reason. But yeah, that was him. One last question there, and then we'll wrap it up. Hi, so I'm Oh, it's curious- good to have a man speak. <laughs> That's great. No. I'm glad I sound like one. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I sound like one. <laughs> but I'm not offended if I don't sound like one. Um, so, Barbara... <laughs> I'm I'm curious to know. You say that you wanted to be a classical actress or classical actor, studying and playing Ibsen and Chekhov and Shakespearean roles. Um, one of your dream roles was to be Juliet, of course, which I think you should totally still do. Um, you know what? Sarah Bernhardt played her at seventy-four, <laughs> but on the stage, I will buy that ticket. Not a close-up. <laughs> I'm curious to know if you still have those desires or wishes or miss those opportunities as you are now or if the career that you've established has compensated for that in any way? No, I, I still think I could see the opening. I couldn't get the, the writer I wanted to do a piece about Sarah Bernhardt because it was really basically to play those great roles. You know, she played Hamlet. She played Les Glands the young Napoleon. In a sense, that's Yentl. You know what I mean? She played those men's roles as well as Camille and all those kind of great roles. So I think about it, but it's so hard to get these things done today. You know? I mean, you have to... Because part of me says, I'm lazy. I'm also lazy. I like to do nothing. I like to garden. That's what I was doing the last few days before I came here. You know, placing plants, redesigning something in all white. Always building, always yeah. designing, yeah. always creating. Yeah. And so. be left alone because it's hard to be in the limelight. I don't really like stardom. You have to understand that. I really don't like it. And what comes with it and I don't like all that. Some people do. Some people really like that. I'm not one of them. So... I don't know what I'll do next. Well, you show no signs of stopping ever. We just saw her show. It was so funny. My parents, I asked, do you mind if my mom meets you backstage? She goes, oh, I hope I have a voice left after the show. Okay, well, she'll do all the talking. Don't worry. We went to the show, and she just gave a magnificent concert. We go in the back. I figured she would just shake my mom's hand. Oh, no, she invites us into the dressing room. She's got curtains up, a film crew. She sat and interviewed my parents for 45 minutes after well, her I, show. Because I can't believe somebody has 10 children. <laughs> and you filmed it. It was like she had her own talk I show mean, back there. I was there. fascinated. 
Barbara After Hours. It was amazing. Yeah, it's it was like it'd be she could be broadcasting that show. It was so sweet. I was so yeah. amazed. You just don't show any signs of stopping. Icon, legend, inspiration, one of the most prolific and accomplished talents. She gangsta, Barbara Streisand. The Tribeca Film Festival takes place every year in New York City. To learn more about all of our programs, visit TribecaFilm.com. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 